Hello, and welcome to the Better Relationship Podcast. I'm your host, Dolphin Casper, and I'll be exploring interesting, exciting conversations with people who have stories, solutions, and expertise to help you in your journey towards richer and more meaningful relationships in your life. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Relation Flicks Podcast. Excited to have you here. I'm also really excited about the conversation today. Uh, today, we have Mike Thomas on the program. Uh, I got a chance to meet Mike. He has joined the Relation Flicks team and has an incredible course on the platform that's all about nervous system regulation from a bunch of lenses and a bunch of angles and tons of tools. And uh, today, I hope to get into some really practical things around essentially why is it that our nervous system does what it does, especially if we found that the way it gets activated gets in the way of how we want to be, how we want to show up and the kinds of relationships we want to create. And and maybe more importantly, what can we do to create the most balanced, responsive, resilient nervous system that we can so that um, in, when times are great, we're all there. And even when times are not so great, we can still show up in the way that we want. So uh, Mike Thomas is passionate about how do we really tap the full reaches of human potential and how do we do so using essentially the whole palette at our disposal. So, you know, mindfulness and inquiry practices, uh, physical practices. He he loves getting into the the nuances of the, the information, but also wants to give people tools they can take with them to make a difference today. So hopefully today we can do that for you as you're listening, uh, go away with some tools that you can start practicing as soon as we get off the call and uh, and make a difference in your life around how you regulate, but also how you relate to others. Mike, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Dolphin. I'm excited. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that I think I want to start with is, you know, something brings us to this work. Uh, I I don't believe that life is random. Uh, I think there's an incredible order and 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 uh, beauty and and sort of poetry to life. And I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit about how you see your life and how it led you to do the work you do. And then we'll get into what that work is and and how people can be helped and supported by it. Mm-hmm. It's such a rich question. And uh, I, I think a great way to summarize that before I go into a little bit of detail is that I also believe that there is this symphony of life that's going on, this this order that we can't always see Uh for those of you who are familiar with the golden ratio, uh, the idea that there's this perfect sequence. And I believe it was Zach Bush, Dr. Zach Bush, who talks about uh, this paper that was written about the smallest measurable uh, unit. Uh, I I forget what it is, but um, when you move up and count the spirals in terms of that ratio, and bring it up to the human experience and the furthest reaches of space that we can measure, there are the same amount of spirals between the smallest measurable unit and the human being. Same distance as that from the human being to the furthest reaches of space. If that's not evidence of pure poetry and and, and the symphony of life happening, I don't know what is. And so my experience with that is that trauma is become somewhat of a buzzword in in culture recently, and I've had no shortage of uh, of traumatic experiences in my life. And what I've found is that they've all been opportunities, once I've been able to fully integrate and process them, to lead me toward my purpose. Partially, in what enriches me as an individual, but more importantly, I feel how I fit into the bigger picture of the collective, how we can all support one another. And what's my part in that? And the challenges in each one of those traumatic traumatic experiences shaped who I am. Um, I'll give one small example and we can go into as many as you'd like. Uh, So this is a bit personal, but uh, so my father was abusive and he had many positive traits. But what ended up happening was there was physical abuse when my mother was pregnant with me to her, as well as when I was an infant. And if you know anything about human development and how important those first few months and years are to development, you have some idea of what kind of impact that can have, the ripple effect outward. And of course, our experience that we have, we usually think that it's normal because that's our only frame of reference. 
And I was no different in that way. I thought there was nothing different about my childhood. I had no idea that that happened. I only found out about that specific trauma a year or two ago, but it helped me to explain a lot of my journey when I started to look back on, oh, I thought I had ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And when you look into the patterns of what happens in a disorder that you can you can label like that, uh, that's one way of looking at those symptoms and that experience is that you can look at, for example, the, the polyvagal curve, meaning the many branches of the vagus nerve, that's this bell curve where the highest level is the highest level of stress and it corresponds to a branch of the nervous system where shutdown and trauma happens. And then in the middle zone, it's where we have that fight flight response. We're more mobile, whereas up here we're more immobile. And then down at the lowest level of stress, we have our cognitive capacities and our ability for empathy, all the things that makes us human. Uh, all of those things are optimized, right? And when you look at how trauma affects that experience, it's it, it, it can be devastating. But as you process it, it creates an unbelievable amount of resilience. And in the case of ADHD, think about it, attention deficit, that's the immobilized zone, hyperactivity disorder, that's the mobilized zone. It's the, this above and below that line of what's called overwhelm and immobilized versus mobilized. And that pattern of symptoms is called the PTSD cycle, meaning under post-traumatic stress, PTSD stands for, for those who aren't aware. It is a pattern of movement in the nervous system where we try and come out of that trauma response and we don't have the tools or resources to come fully down into social engagement to that safe, optimized human experience. So we go right back up and we go up and we go down. Addiction happens there. Uh, lots of uh, psychological pathologies like ADHD, like bipolar, uh, like uh, depression uh, that happens more up here in the, in the immobilized zone or anxiety in that mobilized zone of stress. Um, I'm no stranger to any of these uh, experiences. Uh, and it's it's been very hard won getting to this place of uh, a more regulated nervous system. And in that process, I learned so much about myself, about the human experience. It's driven me to understand more fully how to optimize my experience. Because until I realized that's what was going on in my brain from that early trauma, in addition to some other things that perpetuated it, I had no idea that that wasn't just my personality. I thought that I was just a little spacey and sometimes a little hyperactivity, uh, hyperactive and, uh, and rambunctious. And as it turns out, although there are parts of that that are authentically part of my personality and I get very playful within that hyperactive zone, um, and I can also use that immobile zone as, as this positive experience of cool, calm, collected mindfulness. But the experience is something that's shaped my ability to be resilient and to help others to access that greatest part of themselves. I had no idea that I had the capacity for thinking that I do now until I figured that out and did the appropriate healing in my body. I just thought I was slow. I thought I was mentally slow. I thought I was emotionally unstable. I just thought, yeah, I'm just really bad at relationships. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, this process of being really bad at all those things and then coming through the healing process and seeing what I'm capable of. It inspired me to share that with the world. How many other people are suffering in this experience that they think is a part of who they are? And really there's just an internal conflict, an unresolved trauma that's held in the body. The body thinks it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's, it thinks it's protecting you and it's doing what it's supposed to do based on the tools that it has available. What I learned is that you can teach it that it actually doesn't have to do that all the time, mm. that it can go into the mobilized fight flight zone appropriately when you need to get out of danger or with play when you're in sports, or if you need to shut down because there's no way you can get out of a bad situation. If somebody's holding you up at gunpoint, it's appropriate to freeze. Don't try and take the gun. You're going to get shot. But there's also the positive version of being blissfully immobilized. Shavasana in yoga, right? That corpse pose where you're just blissfully relaxed or a deep meditation or in a blissful orgasmic sexual experience. All of these 
are connected to that positive version of the immobilized zone. And so there are many ways to look at this and, and looking at how to navigate the human experience through this lens has drastically shifted how I look at life. And so when I was a kid, I was a skateboarder and I didn't know that was actually a part of my trauma healing process. Mm. I had no idea that getting my body moving and learning skills gave my body a sense of, oh, I'm safe. I'm competent to move through the world. It gave me more resilience. I learned Tai Chi and I had no idea at the time, but that mindful meditative movement was a way of telling my body that it was safe to be calm and mindful because the movement allowed me to get a sense of control, a sense of agency. And so where I used to dissociate, that is space out, I couldn't focus when I meditated. After practicing Tai Chi for, couldn't have been more than a year, I was then able to meditate and actually stay calm and be in that very focused state. My body needed to know it was okay to do that. Mm -hmm. All of these things that we can do, singing will do this. All of these fall into the category of what Bessel van der Kolk calls limbic body therapy. So Tai Chi, yoga, singing, theater, martial arts. There are all these different ways that we can mobilize the body, build skills, utilize our breath, and get into a playful space where we're improving ourselves. All of these things build resilience. All of these things support releasing trauma from the body and change all the subsequent layers above what's happening in the body. Mm. And that, that's been a key aspect of understanding this whole process is recognizing this layered human experience. Mm. Integral theory is, 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 is a wonderful way of looking at that, but I'm going to pause here for a second and where, where, where shall we go? Yeah. Great question. I mean, there's so many places I want to go. We have a lot of amazing conversations online. Um, I, I don't know whether, whether some of the things that come up there is appropriate for the conversation. We're going to find out. Um, what comes up for me to talk about first is, you know, you brought up the idea that, that this ADHD that you're diagnosed with, or that, that, you know, someone may have told you, you have, um, at first glance looks like a problem. It looks like uh, an issue. It looks like something to solve or fix. And when we zoom in a little bit and we have more resolution on uh, and, and context on, on what's going on, like, of course, of course, that's the way you've learned to navigate. The idea, you know, like to me, play is, is one of the quintessential indicators that you feel safe. And, and if you don't feel safe, play essentially is impossible. And, play is about becoming totally engrossed in what you're doing so that the, the rest of the world falls away. But if you grew up in an unsafe environment, you can't do that. You can't afford to let things in your periphery fall away from your awareness because that's where the danger comes from. Mm -hmm. And so, so like when we get, again, a little bit more context and an ability to see more of the pieces at play, we can start to nod our head and go, oh yeah, of course. And then, and then for me, the, the question that follows once we kind of quote unquote get it is now what? So I think I'd like to start there for someone who has had challenges, whether it's PTSD or uh, you know ADHD, any other kind of diagnosis that they may have experienced, or just a sense that they're carrying around more tension and stress than they'd like to. You know, what would you say as sort of maybe the beginning of your path, or or how do you support people in starting down that road? And then I think there's there's a few directions we can go in from there. So. There are a lot of directions we can go with that. I would say if we want to look at general principles, there are there's a structure I like to use when I'm working with my clients. And I call them the three vectors of awareness. And navigating using those vectors helps to give us some sort of compass, some sort of way of focusing in on, okay, what does my body need right now in order to continue this healing process that my body's ready for? Pacing is really important here because not everyone is going to use the same exact pace, but the formula more or less remains the same. What will reduce stress load? What will allow a sense of agency, competency, mastery, a sense of safety so that you can play? Like you were saying, that indication that you're safe because you're able to fully engross in the moment. You're not hypervigilant for danger, right? Those three vectors of awareness I call, uh, I, I refer to in this model is uh, breathing. How you're breathing indicates what's going on in your nervous system. Movement and sensation. 
So all of these different vectors of awareness, you might think of a three-dimensional graph. Uh, I have a video on YouTube about that. I'm going to skip past that because I get I geek out a little bit on that one. Uh, but I like to use instead sometimes the metaphor of playing a musical instrument, like a violin. And if you can imagine one hand is on the fretboard and is pressing down the strings to change the frequency of the note. And then you have the bowstring that you're moving along those strings to make a vibration to create that melody. When you're using the bowstring, you might think of that as breathing. You're modulating and engaging in the process of shifting or maintaining the nervous system patterns that you're in, depending on where you need to go. When you move, it's like pressing different notes. And so you're changing that frequency based on what note you're playing. And so it vibrates at a higher or lower frequency, changing your breathing, changing how you move. Maybe you're doing something really intense, like high intensity interval training. Maybe you're doing something extra calm, like uh, Wu style Tai Chi, where there's barely any movement at all. It's mostly just implied. And uh, it looks like there's no way that could be a martial art, right? But the music is sensation. The experience of breathing and movement together creates this symphony, this experience of how do I know I'm breathing? How do I know I'm moving? Well, I sense it. I sense it kinesthetically with my body and noticing where my joints are in space. I notice the surface of my skin. I notice when I'm breathing in and out, I can, I can hear the breath. I can feel the expansion into my chest, perhaps, or my belly, or into my back, or into the pelvic floor even. There are all these different indications of what's going on in breathing. So getting back to the core of your question here, how do you use that in a way that is beneficial for you? I would say, notice which of the vectors is most comfortable to focus on. For some people, focusing on sensation is absolutely overwhelming. That's too fast of a pace just to focus on your sensation. If you've had extreme trauma, you probably don't want to start there. Focusing on your body, where your body is going to experience all of those past traumas held as tension in the body, it might be too overwhelming. Now, with a really advanced support therapist or a coach that is well-trained, they can help you do that anyway. But I would recommend not even going to breathing. That can also be potentially triggering. Move. Start to find a way that you like to move. Ideally, something that's playful. But start there. What's an activity that you might lose yourself in? It could be going for a walk in the woods or some sort of hike, right? It could be a discipline like Tai Chi or yoga. It could be singing. Maybe you're not feeling comfortable with your singing voice in public do it in your shower. You know, there are all these different ways that you can approach movement, working on a skill, something that calls to you. My guess is that there's something deeper behind whatever calls to you that you'll find later. I had no idea skateboarding was connected to my spirituality until two plus decades later, I realized, oh my God, I have been practicing building skills so I can support this experience of building skills in all the other areas of my life including resolving trauma for myself and other people. And so this experience of, of skateboarding for me was just such pure play. I lost myself in it, even though I wasn't very comfortable being in my body early on in my life based on all the traumas that happened. When I got on that skateboard, everything else fell away. It was my access to feeling completely playful, to feeling safe. And so I would say to boil that down, find something that, moves you literally and figuratively. I have a question about that, like your journey and, and, and the skateboarding, because I, I feel like people fall into two primary camps when they've had traumatic experiences, they get really safe, like hypervigilant safe where everything is kind of perceived as a danger and they kind of, they look to mitigate all the dangers possible or they become kind of reckless. They, they start to pursue risk in a way that's not healthy. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to your, your movement into skateboarding, if there was a recklessness there um, and then what part that played. Because I think all of, these, all of these reflexive responses to especially intense experiences and trauma 
at their root, they're functional. At their root, they're really calling on our attention and our, our awareness, our, our faculty to work with the pieces at play in the unresolved trauma response. And But they need to be held in a, in a good way for that benefit to take place. Otherwise, they become imbalanced and dysfunctional. So yeah, speak to me about risk and safety and, and where you were at in terms of engaging skateboarding. That's a great question, especially with skateboarding, which is typically viewed as pretty reckless. It's even called an extreme sport and it fits into that category. The interesting thing is I've always been very risk averse, weirdly enough. And I would say that you don't want to pick an activity based on it challenging you out of your comfort zone necessarily, or that you're super comfortable in. Notice what calls you. For me, my experience with that is that I was called to gradually build the skills that allowed me to do the things on a skateboard that previously felt reckless. And I built that slowly. I've actually been very conservative on a skateboard. Most people would see what I've done, see some of the skateboard videos you can see. Type in Mike Thomas Feel the Flow on YouTube. You'll see my best sponsorship skateboarding video. <laughs> and you'll see some of the things that I was doing, you know, grinding down handrails and, you know, jumping down staircases and all sorts of flip tricks and whatnot. Uh, and, and, and some of those obstacles were, were pretty formidable. They were, they were scary at the time. But what I did is I built up a level of skill that allowed me to know no matter what happens here, I know that I can kick my board out and I can just land on my feet or I can roll away. And based on my comfort, I would try something that I knew was easy enough that I knew worst case scenario, I could just kick my board away and land on my feet or roll. And uh, best case scenario, I, I landed, right? Um, so for me, it was about challenging my tendency to avoid risk. I was terrified of hurting myself. And that for me felt very empowering. That might not work for someone who is risk averse. They might not want to push that. I took such small steps. You got to understand, I started when I was six years old. I didn't get my first sponsorship until I was, what, 25? It was a long journey of gradually building these skills and doing it very safely. And on the outside, if you hadn't watched my process, you'd be like, Mike, you're being reckless. Sometimes I felt so good about it that I would challenge myself and I'd be a little bit more re reckless. But for me, that was what was healing about it. I don't recommend that for everyone. <laughs> Notice if it calls you. Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, Alex Hanel, the the gentleman who who did Free Solo, the movie. I'm sure a lot of people are aware of it. He he did a free climb of of El Cap, which is this massive, massive uh, rock face in the United States. I think it's Yosemite. Uh, park and um, no one had ever free climbed it. Free, free climbing means climbing without ropes. So if you fall, game over. And and a lot of people would say to him, "You're insane! Like you have a death wish." And when you watch interviews with him, that's not what comes across. What comes across is someone who who wants to see what's what he's capable of. He wants to know what's possible for him, and he wants to do it responsibly. He wants to mitigate all the risks possible but not close down and crawl into a hole and avoid the things that are really calling him. Like I love that way of terming it is it's not so much that it's, it's your biggest edge or the scariest thing ever, or the most comfortable thing. It's like, are you called? Is there something in your heart that says a clear yes to it? And if so, that's really worth listening to. So, you know, just wanting to bring that thing in is a recklessness from the outside can actually be a safe thing. And so then, then the equation is not recklessness. It's more that the word that came to me was mastery, that there's something about engaging something over time and mastering it that we're all called to. And, you know, everyone's got their own color, right? You know, skateboarding and singing and downhill skiing or mountain biking or engineering, like whatever your thing is, we all have a calling that is our particular excuse to give everything in the pursuit of becoming what we're not yet. So, you know, I'm curious about your relationship with mastery. And for me, like when I'm working with people, I'm always interested in, can I reconnect this person to that part of them that is in love with mastery? Because we all had it when we're very young. Like I have a 15 month old son right now. 
And, and it's so clear to me how innate our desire to master is. Like yesterday, he was outside. He has this little tricycle. He can't really ride it yet. It doesn't have pedals or anything. It's just one of those that he kind of puts his feet on the ground and moves forward. But I watched him. So, so he's off. He's, he's, the tricycle's in front of him. He's not on it yet. He puts his hand on the handle. He throws his leg over. And sometimes his leg gets caught or his knee gets caught or he misses it or steps down too early. But sometimes his leg gets over and he sits down. And then he gets off and then he throws his leg again and it works. And then he sits down and then he throws, gets off. And I watched him do that 30 times in a row because something in him wants to learn. And like, I need to figure this out. Now, I think on some level, that's a survival piece. Like as animals, as mammals, we need to learn the things that we need to learn or we're done. Um, So I think there's an underlying piece of function around survival but it's more than just survival because that's not at play for most humans in the way that it was throughout our evolutionary past, but there's still something that calls us. So anyway, for you, mastery and that call, that heart's call to something, what does that mean to you? And what role does that have for us along our sort of healing journey? Again, a number of directions I could go. The two things that came to mind are one, decoupling my drive for mastery with the chip on my shoulder of being my father's son. He was an unbelievably talented athlete. Like the type of guy who would say, hey, see the apple on that that tree stump? Tosses his rock up, turns around, eyes closed, and then does a crow hop, it's a baseball term, and throws it, apple explodes. You're like, no human could do that. How in the world did you pull that off? And compared to him, I wasn't even close. And so there, but there was this drive. I want to be better. I want to be better than I was yesterday. And I realized that my journey was not to be a phenom, but to learn the small steps that it takes to master something that I really want to master. And as part of decoupling that drive to want to be as good as, you know, from thinking I'm not good enough, from actually wanting to master something with from a positive place i needed to find my why i needed to find why that was important to me and it came down to a belief that we can always be better a belief that humans are capable of amazing things and that there's a way there's always a way and that concept fueled me There were songs that gave me this sense of driving force and angst. If you've ever seen uh, The Matrix and paid attention to Neo, The Matrix is a system. And within that system, you know, did you see the woman in the red dress? There's a song playing in the background called Club to Death. I'm not a huge fan of the name, but the song has this driving force behind it. And that feeling behind it, when I played it in the background, when I was practicing my skateboarding moves, I had this sense of, you know, I think I'm capable of more than I know I am. And with that belief, I would put that energy into it. And, and, and it gave me this profound sense of joy that had nothing to do with the chip on my shoulder. And it was just, I'm in this moment and it's really important to me. And it's, it's sort of this intangible spiritual connection to what's possible for humanity, what's possible for me and why am I here? Why am I here on this earth? And are there things that I'm naturally good at that I'm supposed to give? Or maybe there, maybe that's true. Maybe there are also some things that I can build because I have passion to go there. Because I have passion to want to learn how it works enough to break it into small enough pieces that even though when I was six years old, horribly uncoordinated and I just, you know, I had two left feet. It was, it was, it was quite a project getting used to balancing on a skateboard, let alone, you know, mastering it and doing all the tricks that I ended up learning. Uh, but that made it even more exciting for me. It's like, wow, if I can get good at it with where I'm starting now, think of what human beings are capable of. Think of the people that are talented. Think of the people that don't have the blocks that I do. What good could we create by empowering those people, by helping them to release the blocks Ultimately, that came together after all of these different practices from skateboarding to wrestling to Tai Chi to healing trauma and the work that I do with people. It all came down to this experience of 
what more are we that we don't know yet? Mm. What yeah. is possible? And and how can I embody that in a way that inspires other people to want to do the same thing? Like I saw that professional skateboarder when I was six or seven years old on the on the TV, and I was like, oh my God, you can get it to pop up in the air and stay with your feet and slide down a handrail? Oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Is it possible? Could I do that? And then I started setting goals like, okay, by the time I'm 18, I want to do, I want to slide down a handrail and I want to be able to pop my skateboard up. It's called an Ollie. I want to be able to Ollie over a trash can, a full-size trash can. I accomplished both of those, but I started when I was like eight in that process. It took 10 years. I just barely made it that year. And that slow process of gradual improvement taught me something about, oh my God, we're, we're missing all of these amazing opportunities to grow. For example, intellectually, where I thought I was slow. And when I find I was always seeking ways, like, how can I get smarter? How can I get more tuned in and learn things that I think I'm not capable of? And once I got that one piece around healing trauma and how that frees the traumatized brain into more cognitive potential, more empathetic potential, more everything, really, relational potential, uh, I started to realize, oh my goodness, if I can do this, what could other people do? Is somebody who is meant to cure cancer blocked by some internal conflict that could be inspired by something I do or someone who does the work like I do to find a way to resolve that and step into their purpose? Mm -hmm. There's nothing more exciting to me than that. Yeah, and there's sort of two things that you're talking about there. You know, this idea of of what could someone without the barriers you had do, and then the last thing you just said is, you know, for people with those barriers, how do those barriers get transformed into something positive? And in a way, I actually, uh, it's clear to me that what we call barriers, when approached with the right context and the right, the right sort of a, the right attitude they become our superpower. And so it's for those of you out there listening that are thinking like, I'm so broken, this has all happened to me. What what good am I? Like, how could I possibly X, Y, or Z? Um, we often look at people who do great things in the world and think, well, they're just smarter than me. They're more talented than I am. They have an easier, you know, they know people that I don't know. Um, for me, the things that people have done in the world that truly matter are people that had massive barriers, massive challenges, and found a way to still give everything they can possibly give. And these are the most resilient, the most inspiring, the most courageous people. This is just, you know, look look throughout history. It's very easy to see the, the pattern. So, so first, if you feel like you're broken and it's just a lost cause for you, um, it would be worth questioning that belief, that core belief that a lot of people are carrying. Um, the other thing that you said that I thought was interesting, and and it, it was actually Bill Gates that said it. I, I just love the actual intelligence of the quote. I, we don't have to get into any politics about Bill Gates, although, you know, maybe after the call. Um, he said, most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10. And and to me, that that's so poignant. It's so poignant. We we tend to be, be a bit pie in the sky. Like I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And like, it's all going to happen in 10 months. And it's like, okay, sometimes we can do great things, but when we commit to something long-term and we keep pouring our love and our energy and our attention and our care into it, that's where real magic happens. That's where a real mastery, a real uh, kind of, um, yeah, like the fullness of what we're capable of comes into form. So, what I want to kind of move into now is in terms of what what we can do, like with the nervous system being what it is after traumatic experiences, whether it's an acute trauma or something that's more chronic um, that shows up more like a PTSD um, or CPTSD, complex uh, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, you know, what can we do? And and I want to throw in a concept that's been coined in the last, I think, five to 10 years, but I, I it's worth looking at because I think it's relevant to what you're going to respond with. Um, people have started to talk about post-traumatic growth. They've started to talk about what, what does it look like in the human nervous system after the trauma, after the difficulty, and then after the integration or healing. Then what? Like, what is that? human being and what does their nervous system look like? What is their nervous system capable of? So how do we go from, 
from PTSD or CPTSD to post-traumatic growth? And then maybe talk a little bit about, you know, some of the knowledge that you have around the nervous system and, and what that process is really doing, like what's happening in that. Mm. I love this question. I I have a metaphor that I like to bring up in relation to what the experience of trauma is like. Imagine that trauma smashes you into thousands of pieces. Whereas beforehand, if you can imagine that you were a low resolution TV screen, uh, maybe the screen itself, the glass and all of the particles smashes into thousands of pieces, right? That experience of having all those pieces everywhere is chaotic. It's lacking order. It's lacking coherence. It's lacking the capacity to be functional. And from personal experience, I mean, I couldn't hold down a job for a couple of years. It was, talk about a, a drastic contrast between where I am now and where I was even 10 years ago, uh, five years ago. It's a process that I'm continuing in. But back to that metaphor, when you do the healing work, imagine that you're able to put all of those pieces together and form a high resolution TV screen. You have high definition now. That is post-traumatic resilience, post-traumatic growth. The experience of you now understand all the ins and outs of what it's like as a human being to have everything that you are collapse. Everything that you are is non-functional and you have to put those pieces back together. Now, what we know about healing trauma most effectively is that the presence of a safe other and more importantly, I would say a community that supports that process of healing is key. We can't do it alone. We're not isolated islands. As a matter of fact, Dan Siegel and Bessel van der Kopp, uh, Danielle Ivans Fishman was watching a, a workshop and they were speaking and they've spoken about this before, but the way that she spoke about what they were saying in this, this relationship workshop struck me. They were talking about how, in a sense, self-regulation, the ability to regulate ourselves is kind of inaccurate as a concept. It's not that we can't do it. It's just that it is a copy of what we do when we're regulating with others. Most importantly, that regulation experience with our parental caregivers. You know, I say parental caregivers because it might not be mom and dad. Maybe we're adopted or maybe it's our grandparents or aunts or uncles. Um, whoever it was that was there to be our attachment figure, they set the stage for how our nervous systems automatically function. Is it secure functioning? And this goes into attachment theory. And we're able to regulate our nervous systems most effectively. We have a window of tolerance that we can go through stressful experiences before we're like, okay, I'm empty. I need to go recharge. Whereas somebody with extensive trauma, they have barely any window. As a matter of fact, they probably don't have a window at all and they've learned to compensate for it by using addictive patterns or uh, their body has gone into a survival pattern to keep them in that pain. Anxiety gets us moving and thinking so we don't have to experience our bodies. Depression gets us dissociated so we don't have to feel them. And these strategies, whether they're the unconscious ones that I just described, or somewhat more conscious strategies, we're trying to navigate the experience of not having that window, that ability to move through our lives with the ability to deal with stresses as they come up. And so building that builds that high, defin high definition TV screen in, in metaphor, right? Where we're able to see so clearly all the little bits and pieces of what it was like to put that back together with the help of others. And this is why I'm so passionate about relationships and relation flicks is that it's all about the experience of how we heal one another, how we support one another, how this happens at a deep unconscious level in our bodies through body language exchange. And that's a lot of what I do when I work with people is help them to become aware of what that body language exchange is like. And we do it individually to get a sense of sort of practicing for the big game, you might say. Self-regulation work in, in a healing context is practicing so that you can go out there in your relationships and be more regulated. So you can take things less personally. 
so you can recognize when something triggers you, oh, that's actually from my past. That's not the person doing that. They are reminding me of something unconsciously that's bringing my body into a state of survival. And that's a really, really difficult thing to connect to for the first time. It's like immediately, you did this, you made me feel this way, is the automatic response when we're so dysregulated and we don't have a window of tolerance. And so learning to create even the littlest window gives us an opportunity to play within that and recognize, oh, there's a space. Somebody said something, for example, oh, uh, what did you do with your hair? They might say. And if you've been made fun of in middle school for a bad haircut or something having to do with your appearance, you're probably not going to get in that moment, if you haven't done this work, the deep inner work, that they're, they might just be saying, uh, you know, your hair sticking up and they haven't figured out a way of saying that concisely yet. But the first thing that comes into your mind is they're making fun of me. Why, why would they do that? Why would they, they betray my, my trust and, and, and talk about something that makes me feel so bad versus when you do the work and you recognize, oh yeah, I've, I've been bullied and made fun of for my appearance and, and my lack of abilities or whatever it is. And that's coming up now. It has nothing to do with what the person said. Now, of course we can learn to communicate better and, and avoid those triggers. Uh, but avoiding triggers altogether will not build resilience. And so I bring that example up and any example like it, where we get triggered by something that reminds us unconsciously of the past, because in order to do the healing work, we need to work toward expanding that window of tolerance. And even if it's just on blind faith at first, trauma makes us feel hopeless, helpless. It's never going to get better. At first, sometimes you just have to go on blind faith and go, okay, I don't have much of a window or maybe I have no window, but I'm going to a professional who has done this work before, has helped other people heal before. I'm just going to offer a little bit of faith here and try it on. And once you get to experience that, that experience of regulation, then you can start to go, oh, I have a little bit more evidence now. So the concept of post-traumatic resilience versus post-traumatic stress disorder it's really important within that framework to see that yes, it's going to be a difficult uphill climb in the beginning, but no, not only is it going to get better, you're going to be better off in terms of your resilience and your capacity to regulate yourself, inspire people and thrive in your life than people who have never gone through trauma. Mm. And they have what I refer to as regulation privilege. It's, it's one of those terms that can alienate people if if they feel like you're saying, oh, you have everything and you don't know what it's like to have it hard. For people who are going through the experience of dysregulation, it can be helpful to recognize that not everyone is dysregulated like they are and that there is a bit more of an uphill climb. Sure, hiking up a mountain is going to build strength, but hiking up through those obstacles is going to feel like it's not working. It's going to feel like you suck at it. It's going to feel like maybe it's hopeless sometimes. Maybe you fall back and you get washed down the stream. But through that process in your life, you're building this post-traumatic resilience. When you get out of that river, when you take off that weight vest, you're Arnold Schwarzenegger in terms of your resilience, your strength, your ability to navigate life. It changes the game completely. And so I would say that it's so important if you're going through hell right now, keep going. It will get better. Yeah, the the point there that you're making around, you know, I don't mind the term, uh, what a regulation privilege or self-regulation privilege. Um, it's just worth recognizing and and honoring the fact that that we all have a different package. You know, we came in with a different package. We've lived different lives. We've made different choices, and our nervous systems are different in many ways. And I remember watching. I think his name was. Um, Henry Markram. He's a neuro, neuroscientist. I watched this TED talk from, this is like maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, but he said that in terms of the brain, what they're finding is, or what they were finding at the time, is that everyone has a different pattern, but the, the underlying fabric is the same. So it's sort of like, you know, like a carpet. It could have any kind of design on it. But the way that all of those things are kind of put together, there's a certain way that that works. 
And that's heartening. And what's also heartening is all of what we've discovered around how plastic the nervous system is, how adaptable, how changeable it is. And so then the question becomes like, well, what are the most effective ways that we can transform the nervous system? Not necessarily because there's something broken that needs fixing, but because like we started with, in terms of human potential, a part of what we're here for is to become something we aren't yet. And if we can choose something that's worth the road of healing and the road of, of, of evolution, it's worth that road to walk, then, then we have what we need to provide a context for our pain, a context for the difficult steps ahead. And, and when we do that, for me, without fail, we discover a deeper relationship with the meaning of our lives and that, and that, those, that, that deeper meaning is fundamentally relational. So tell me what you want to say about that. Mm. So good. So good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the emotions of that, actually. Our life and the meaning that we can cultivate from those challenges is fundamentally relational. So what's coming up for me is the experience of feeling isolated, feeling alone in my journey of healing. And so often what happens in that process is that we find ourselves in a position where it seems like we have to do it all alone, that we have to do it without anyone's help, that no one understands us. Now, it's important to recognize that the traumatized brain has a negativity bias, and that is a survival mechanism. So we can seek out possible dangers based on how we've been conditioned and make sure that it doesn't happen again. So it's not that negativity bias is bad. It's actually an adapt adaptation that helps us to survive. And this experience of it's hopeless, I feel alone, I can't do it. The meaning that you can cultivate from that to, as you come from one side of the experience, feeling alone to realizing that you're not, that you're never alone. Sometimes it starts with a pet or with a sense of spiritual connection to your higher self or God, however you approach that, whatever you believe. But gradually you may start to notice as you continue going through the process that the most meaningful moments are shared with someone. It could be your relationship with yourself. And those are some, you know, I, I have moments where I crack myself up and I'm hysterically laughing. Um, I found out from my somatic therapist that the vibration in my diaphragm of laughing, just like crying, is actually something that helps with releasing trauma of, of tension of held breath from childhood, right? So this experience of maniacally laughing and making myself crack up was actually a healing mechanism that I didn't even realize I was using. And taking that segue back in, the experience of meaning in this relational context. Notice the memories that are the most joyful, the most profound. For me, it's always been something that I shared with someone. It's almost like it feels more real if someone can be there to mirror that, to hold that, to hear that, to see you, it's almost like you become more real. You feel that experience more deeply because they're there with you. That compassionate, safe other, that witnessing of maybe it's your pain. I've had amazing moments that I still remember where someone was there for me when I was just completely broken. And he was there for me when I thought it wasn't worth staying here on this planet. And he may never know the impact that he had on me, and that's okay. I, I tell him whenever I get a chance, but it's so profound, I don't know if it might sink in fully. There are these moments that we have the opportunity to give, even when we're in our most painful places, the most hopeless, the most helpless. We can do that for someone else, and oftentimes, being that for someone else can be the most healing thing that we can do for ourselves as well as that other person. So those are my thoughts on that. Yeah. Awesome. I, I just love, I love the rawness. I love the real, um, what you just said about when we share something, it, it's more real. And, and that's just true. Like everything we know about the human condition, about life, if we look at it without uh, any kind of like, you know, apathetic predisposition, 
when we express something, it changes the other, like their biology changes, their, the chemistry in their body changes, their, their affect, the, their subjective experience changes. It does change reality when we communicate and connect and interact in a relational way. And, and we get to choose what that real is. It can be reflexive, it can be compulsive, it can be addictive, or it can be something else. And, and this is where, you know, I think, you know, I want, I want you to leave people with any final thoughts or maybe your favorite practice, anything that you feel like is a, is a simple takeaway that they can take. Um, but I wanted to say one thing about, you brought up the window of tolerance. And, and I think it's, it's a, a beautiful concept for us to recognize that there's a certain set of circumstances, a certain kind of dynamic where we feel safe enough to be at ease in a way. We feel safe enough to be ourselves where more of our faculties, more of our presence, more of our thinking and rationality is at play. And we tend to make better decisions. We tend to take better care of ourselves in that window. And then there's these thresholds where we, you know, something happens and and old patterns kick in. And I think there's two primary approaches to expanding the window of tolerance. There is working with sort of experience and circumstance. Like how do I work with my environment and my inner state so that I feel more safe? And then there is the other domain where can I somehow become more willing to be with what I've said no to being with in the past? And I think both are needed. If we're going to effectively expand our window of tolerance, we can't just become managers of circumstance and state. I think that's actually, it's a hidden prison for us where part of the healing journey is, is simply being with what we chose not to be with before. Not making it wrong that we chose that, but as we become more interested and more able to be with what's difficult, we realize that, that it's not just a therapist or a coach or a practice that, that delivers us into a broader window of tolerance. It's something intrinsic about ourselves, uh, a capacity to, to deeply know how powerful and resilient we are and that we can show up with what looks like magic. It's, it's why those quintessential moments in movies touch us and why tears stream down our face because it's touching something in us that knows how much is truly possible for the human condition. So I just wanted to bring that piece in because I think it's, it's just so powerful. I think people get it, but not always. Like I think we get into the busyness and the intensity and the, the overwhelm of life and, and, and our traumas, however they show up. And we tell ourselves the story like it's just out of my control. And then I, I like to at least challenge that thought or belief. So any final thoughts, anything you want to leave people with? I've totally loved this conversation and I knew I would. Likewise. Um, I would say with the disclaimer that you want to notice how your body's responding, there's a simple practice that you can engage in to whatever degree feels like the pace that's right for you. So just notice if you want to be there and in the practice or not. And if you don't want to, then disengage. It's as simple as that. It's not about, by the way, this process of healing. It's not about avoiding ever being dysregulated. That's not going to help anything. It's about learning to recognize when you are and navigating that more and more effectively. So a really great facilitator, therapist, coach, whoever it is that's supporting you in your healing process will not make sure you don't will make sure you avoid all possible dysregulation opportunities. They'll recognize when you are and they will use that as an opportunity to help you learn how to navigate that. That's what creates more resilience is learning to navigate that dysregulation. And so the practice that I'd like to offer is something that I learned from uh, a, a wonderfully intuitive uh, bodywork practitioner, one of my wonderful many mentors, uh, Paul Darby. Uh, in TRE. TRE is Trauma Intention Releasing Exercises. Uh, and he was my mentor in learning that skill set. And the exercise is called grounding and filling. And the idea is that the inhale represents filling with awareness. Now, it can just be that simple as the concept, or you can actually imagine that you're filling up from your feet, through your legs, your torso, your head, your arms. However detailed you want to get, that's fine. The inhale is inhaling awareness. And the exhale symbolically is accepting whatever you feel. 
and letting it go. And often you can imagine that it, those sensations are draining down through your body, through your legs and out your feet into the ground. Hence the term rounding, grounding and filling. Inhale awareness, whatever your body is feeling. And whatever you notice with acceptance, exhale, letting that go again. And you just repeat that cycle. Inhale awareness, whatever you notice. Maybe it's the same sensation, maybe it's different ones. And exhale, let those go, symbolically letting it go. New inhale, new moment with beginner's mind like you've never felt it before, even if it's the same. Exhaling, letting those go again. Through that process, about 10 breaths is a good practice to start with. If you pay attention to what you feel in your body before you start it and what you feel afterward, let's say you have a tension headache, you notice specifically where it is. Chances are, if you focus in on the exact experience that you're, you have before you do it and after, you'll notice that it's shifted, that it's changed, that your body is in this healing process. This very simple exercise of attention, the movement of attention with your breathing and navigating your sensation. It includes all the vectors of awareness, breathing, movement, and sensation. What you're doing is you're focusing on one moment, one breath at a time. And it gives you an opportunity to practice being present with one breath. And then let that go. And then in another breath. It's just one breath at a time. So when it feels overwhelming to be in your body sensations, this type of practice can leave you with a, a sense of, yeah, but it's just this one breath. I think I'm willing to feel my sensations for this one breath. And then I'll let that go. And if I want to do another, I'll do another. And over time, you get better. I call it the mindfulness muscle that you build. When you lift weights, you're creating micro tears in, in the physiology of your muscle, right? The myofibrils. And when you relax, when you rest, when you recuperate, you get proper nutrition and sleep. That's critical for getting stronger. If you just lift weights and you don't stop, you're going to get weaker. You're going to get overtrained. Mindfulness, you might think about as you focus on the present moment and your sensations, is like building the mindfulness muscle, doing the work. But when you get distracted, that's like taking a rest. It's a natural process to get distracted. So if you feel like, oh man, I could only focus for one breath and then I spaced out or I lost interest or it was uncomfortable for me. Okay, cool. You got through one breath. What about the next time you try it? Breath and a half, two breaths, Eventually you're doing 10 and you're doing 10 minutes and you're doing 30 minutes maybe, or maybe you're like, huh, I feel more comfortable in my body. I'm ready to take on an activity. Now I feel comfortable, more competent that I'll be able to learn a skill now that I'm able to feel my body and so on. You can expand and figure out your pace and of course, get someone to support you in the process, whether it's a friend or a professional be with somebody. That relational experience makes all the difference. Share what you've experienced with them. If, if you're not seeing someone professionally to support you, share with your best friend, share with your spouse. What was it like? It's an awesome bonding moment opportunity as well. Yeah. Amazing. Now, you know, I know that we hear these types of practices and people thought, oh, that's a nice idea. Um, yeah, I'll try that. And then maybe, maybe we don't try it. So I would just say, if this inspired you, if you had a sense that this practice could really make a difference for you, make some notes or just try it. Like one of the things I've known is that when I learn something, if I do it right away, it lands in memory and it lands in intention much more strongly. So I'm just encouraging people, as soon as you get off the podcast, try it, try the exercise and then, then see if you want to schedule it into your day. And if you want more of what you experienced in the call today in, in, the, in the conversation that we've had, check out Mike's course on Relation Flicks. If you don't have a subscription already, please come by and check it out. We get we give a month away for free, so please come and join us. And Mike, absolute pleasure as always. Where can people find you if they want more of what you're up to? So you can look at some of my work on the website, www.holisticfitnesslifestyle.com. And you can reach me by email at holisticfitnesslifestyle.com at gmail.com. You can also reach me on my Facebook page. Uh, I have a YouTube channel called Holistic Fitness Lifestyle. It's the only one by that name. Uh, and tons of free content there from exercise to attachment theory to breathing exercises. There are 
hundreds of videos on there that you can check out. So feel free to reach out or just check out my content and see how it feels for you. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. I can't wait till next time, whenever that is. And uh, for all of you that joined in, thank you for being here. We look forward to sharing more. Thank you so much for being here. You've been listening to the Better Relationship Podcast brought to you by RelationFlix. Please subscribe to the podcast and you can go and check us out at relationflix.com. We look forward to sharing so much more with you. And until next time, my friends, love well.